Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. I'm going to carry you around with me from here on in. Hello and welcome to our Christmas gathering here at Pantasocracy. Now, for the benefit of the studio audience here, I have made a seasonal effort and dug out my sparkly red dress. Obviously, listeners will just have to take that on trust. Now, to celebrate the season, or at least mark its passing for the Grinches among you, I'm joined in our Christmas parlour this evening by some great Irish talent who will be sharing stories and songs that will warm your Christmas evening and at least go some way to making up for the disappointment of that present that your partner got you clearly at the last minute on Amazon. <laughs> now, in my Utah parlour, I've got not one, but two beautiful Irish singers, Lisa Lamb and Lima Mwainly. Now, Lisa, as the studio audience can see, is about two-thirds hair. And, <laughs> and this year alone, Lisa has been on stage in things as diverse as the musical drama The Train in the Peacock, which is about the contraceptive protests in the 1970s, to once again playing Sorka, otherwise known as Mrs. Ross O'Carroll Kelly. And of course, in between all her stage work, she's been performing everywhere from Bray to New York. And she's just back from Myanmar, and while she was in New York, she was performing with Limo Mwainly and the Hot House Flowers. And of course, Liam is, as always, mixing it up between his own solo work and with Flowers, who have been making music for over 30 years. So please welcome Lisa and Liam. <laughs> Beside Lisa there, uh, we have a man whose feet have brought him all around the world. It doesn't sound that impressive when I put it that way, but what I mean is he's a dancer um, and one that many of us first saw in Riverdance, um, although of course nowadays he creates his own beautiful work as a dancer and choreographer. Please welcome Colin Dunn. Yeah. Then over here uh, we have a woman of words. She's a poet from Cork who writes in both Irish and English. She has won gazillions of awards and she says her poems are about life, death, desire and domesticity, which sounds suspiciously Scorpio to me, but I, I will have to check that out. And please welcome Diren Nigrifa. And to round off our table, we have a man of musical magic. He's a composer who blends traditions, a jazz musician who plays saxophone and clarinet, and someone who once made an album by cycling around Ireland and capturing musical snapshots inspired by the places en route. So please welcome Sean McAlean. Which is sort of a smorgasbord of delights, or whatever the Irish for smorgasbord is. But I guess something that connects all of our guests today is that they all draw on the well of Irish traditions, you know, poetry and language and dance and music and song, and they sort of use them to open a window on contemporary Ireland, which got me thinking about how we use our roots and traditions and our stories to sort of reimagine our place. And uh, with that in mind, I have been thinking about Christmas. My sisters and I would write our letters with great care, your tongue out in concentration. I would mark out each letter slowly and deliberately with seven-year-old gravitas, knowing that as soon as I had finished, my mother or father would, with similar gravitas, place the letter into the fireplace and then coax the burning ash to float up the chimney and out into the dark Mayo night, where it would drift and float until it reached the magical Mr. Claus. <laughs> My letter would always begin and end with the expected polite greetings, inquiring after the health of Santi and his good wife, and passing on my best wishes to Rudolph. But both Santi and I knew that it was the list sandwiched between those salutations that was the real reason that I was writing. 
Now, it was a short list, just three or four items, in descending order of magnitude and importance. The last item, gently but firmly insisted on by my mother, was always the same. You know, in case of supply chain problems or industrial action by the elves, <laughs> uh, she'd make sure that I wrote, or a surprise. <laughs> I suppose you could call it a get-out clause clause. <laughs> um, but the first item on my list was also exactly the same every year. My number one, my first preference, you know, every year after checking the spelling, I would carefully write in all capitals, a gorilla suit. <laughs> For some now forgotten reason, but probably Tarzan based, I had decided that only a gorilla suit would make my Mayo life complete. Now, of course, <laughs> Nowadays, with the internet and Amazon and the manufacturing power of a billion Chinese at his fingertips, no doubt Santi could deliver on my oddly specific hairy simian wish. But at the time, in 1970s Mayo, my mother would explain that Santi would do his very best. But just in case, I did put down our surprise, didn't I? And I did. But every year, as stubbornly as hopefully, I wrote a gorilla suit at the top of my list. <laughs> and every year, my Christmases remained stubbornly and resolutely gorilla-free. <laughs> you know, we put great store by Christmas. You can tell because, you know, we say that we're going to do it smaller next year or next year I'm going away, but we never do. And we continue to food shop as if stocking a wartime bunker and argue over who cooked it and ate it and didn't dishwash it. Whether we love it or hate it, we give it great weight and meaning. And you can tell we give it weight and meaning because we love it or hate it. We fill it with memories, fattening its significance each year as we add more. Mementos of weather and faces and silly jumpers and novelty gifts that had already broken before the sound of music came on. <laughs> like an old camera reel, we revisit our Christmas's past of songs and gins and rows and slights and hugs and tears and cuddles and sherry trifle of kitchen disasters and sibling rivalries, of people who couldn't make it this year, and yes, loved ones who won't make it again. We put great store by Christmas. You can tell because we argue over what it is and what it means and who gets to own it. You see, while I love Christmas, I am not a religious person, a fact that forces my poor mother to practice her own religion that little bit harder as she intercedes on my heathen behalf, <laughs> piling defensive decades of the rosary between me and my final reckoning. You know, my Christmas is secular, the very worst kind of Christmas, I'm told, as if secular is interchangeable with trite or meaningless or shallow or pointless. But it's my Christmas, and my Christmas has weight and meaning for me, the weight and meaning of cross-country train journeys and last-minute shopping and neighbors popping in and out and a small dry sherry for granny. You know, four decades of mammy's plum pudding, bad cracker jokes, and keep an eye on the turkey, I'm just popping down to Mary, it's her first Christmas without Joe. The meaning of family traditions, some that predate me and others, more recent ones, that quietly and unconsciously became cherished ones without us noticing, like watching Christmas Strictly and slagging the frocks. <laughs> I like my Christmas. You know, my Christmas of friends and family and place. It's nieces and siblings and dad snoring over Harry Potter. It's another pair of gloves unwrapped and exclaimed over as if we've never seen gloves before. <laughs> it's a gin and tonic with Mrs. Guckeen next door and a squeaky bone wrapped for Penny the dog as if she cares about rapping. <laughs> it is memory, connection and nostalgia. It is a remembrance of those gone but still loved but it's also an open door welcoming new memories, new connections, and new loved ones. 
There isn't one Christmas. There's an infinite number of them, as many as we make, perhaps as many as we need. So, happy Christmas. Happy your Christmas to you and yours. Now, it's easy for me to like Christmas because, you know, I'm the lazy one who doesn't really have to do much. You know, my sisters and my mother do all the hard work and all. Lisa, I suspect, just looking at you, <laughs> that you're a Christmas girl. <laughs> you're dressed like a Christmas tree. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah, I love sparkles. I love Christmas. I don't have to do very much either at Christmas because I'm the youngest of 10. Okay. So growing up, it's always a wonderful, special time. And I did a lot of gaiety pantomimes as a child so because you were the full-on billy barry right yes i did billy barry for 10 years so when i was three i started and my childhood was based and and immersed in theater really especially christmas time the kind of the walk up grafton street and switzer's window so christmas always brings me back to that time with family Mm. liam are you a christmas guy i like it yeah I, i like the stolen pints the stolen coffee or the stolen time and time changes around this time I feel you know Mm. you meet somebody and time seems to stretch and I remember I was in Cork when I was told that there's this mystical thing happens that he comes to our place and he brings gifts and like I was gobsmacked and my auntie Eileen she told me that he's coming he's coming here he's not he is (laughs) He's not. No way. What? I was in a room with the oldest woman in the world at the time for me. You know the way I think a lot of families have this woman who lives in their house, you know. Yeah. My, my, grand, <laughs> my grandparents had Miss Murphy and she was great. She was really old. But I woke up and even though it was my first day realising that he's supposed to come, I knew he hadn't. And I roared and my dad had to run down from the attic where he was sleeping <laughs> and show me that the Lego was on the steps and he took me up then and uh, we spent from, I suppose, about five o'clock in the morning until breakfast time playing with Lego. And it's a special day, especially when you have children and Darren, you have four, is that right? I do, I do have four. You do not look old enough to have four children. Well, I feel plenty old (laughs) enough. I feel ancient after having four children. But I suppose what I think of about when I was little was my mum was from Dublin so we used to come from Clare to Dublin almost every Christmas Mm. and the sense of coming from rural Ireland up along these windy, 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 windy roads all the way for so long and having the family all together in the car you know what that's like (laughs) but it would always be dark by the time we'd reach Dublin and there it would be just lying there twinkling and to me in my imagination as a child it's kind of inextricably linked with the idea of a Christmas tree and the fairy oh, lights and Christmas yes, tree yeah. seeing the city twinkling there. And it's what I always think of when I think of Christmas. So, yeah, I love Christmas. And your kids are how old now? So they're nine, seven, five and two and a half. Oh, my God. You're full Santy, the full. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a joy to wake up on Christmas morning and come downstairs and see the surprises that have been brought to them and yeah. how they react to that. Well, well, I think there's very little magic left in our world. And so that's one of the last bits when you're in a Christmas house with kids and you know, this magic is so real and alive still for them. Yeah, it's there. It's, it's, and, yeah. and you know what I find really interesting as well is going through that transition from enjoying Christmas as a child to enjoying it as an adult. 
say in your own home and when you have children, the sense of decorating the place mm. with them. I love that. Taking yeah. everything out and decorating in your own way and adding a few things. Poor Colin. He doesn't enjoy Christmas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, I was going to keep it for the end and I want to ruin the books until <laughs> we got there. Because Sean, you have a seven-year-old. I do, yeah. So yeah. your own personal feelings about Christmas are out the window because you have to throw yourself into yeah. it. Well, look... My own personal opinions changed quite dramatically once the child came along. Yeah. So she's seven now. So before that, like, it was quite strict. There was no Christmas trees. I put up tinsel and things like this, but now that magic is definitely it's there. Been it's been dialed up to 11. Yeah, and it's beautiful to see. And yeah, Christmas gets earlier and earlier every year. And she learns, like, the Christmas starts in, you know, October now. Yeah. Well, I see, Colin, I am partly on your side here. Yeah, because I, I hate that it starts so early and all that. But I've always loved the actual day. Partly because I'm lucky. I actually like my family. So I like being forced to take this one day out of the year and just spend it locked inside the house because I actually don't spend enough time with them. Um, now, so are you just a Grinch about it entirely or... It's funny the way you kind of get cast as a Grinch when you kind of bring <laughs> yeah. up a, like you're some kind of archetypal <laughs> villain or something when you don't like Christmas. I've been thinking about it and I think a lot of the reason why I don't like it is because it is too long. I mean, I find the music really offensive. I may be sensitive to noise and sound <laughs> yeah. and bad music. So, you know, I went into my supermarket on the 3rd of November to buy lemons, water and hand soap. And there they are. It started. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I wish it could be Christmas every day. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. um, like Because now we've got two months of it. It's from the 3rd of November now until and it doesn't stop until after New Year. And well, I, I mean, I agree about that because I feel the lengthening of it also, it takes away from its specialness. If it's two it months does. long, mm. it, it can't be special for two months. Yeah, it's around the length and just how people just kind of get too excited about something that I can't really kind of buy into or get excited about. And well, I hate to bring And it's noise and it's lights and it's sound and it's kind of, it's offensive. But some of it, it <laughs> sort of totally is, the blaring out of supermarkets and, and all that. But I hate to break it to you because I just read this thing the other day in the paper, you know, that they've done this study and people who put up their Christmas decorations early are happier people. Yeah, you see, I don't put up Christmas decorations at all. So they <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I'm an appreciator of light and shade, and, and you're my shade for the day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, now, but Lisa, I'm actually, you know, you might have guessed, but I'm homosexual. So obviously, I'm really interested in this whole Billy Barry Christmas. Like, you were on the Late Late Toy Show loads of times. Yes, I was. What was great about it was I had them all recorded on various cassettes over the years with like half of my brother's football match on some of it. And then, you know, it'd be erased and then you'd go, oh, there's a little snippet. And then, but the Late Late Show was 30 years old, about five years ago. And I was asked to come into RT and talk about my time on the toy show. And I did four, I think it was four toy shows I did with Billy Barry. But the first year I did it, I was six and I did a solo dance at Shirley Temple. Did the Temple. other kids hate you for getting the solo? Well, I mean, it was just so much fun. And I, and I look back and I remember, I, I can't believe that we got so much airtime. I think my dance went on for about four minutes at the time. And now everything seems to be so quick and rapid fire throughout. And you were a panto girl as well, were you? A panto girl. Oh, we just loved it. And even if there was like a trickle of snow, again, your imagination as a child, we were, you know, we used to be in the gaiety and we'd be thinking, oh, maybe we'll get snowed in. We'll have no school tomorrow. And, <laughs> but yeah, it was an amazing time. And, you know, just, I think that's something I love, um, even as an adult, is that there's a smell in a theatre, I think. There's a magic. There you know, is, when you go yeah, into the yeah. stage door, you can, especially in the gaiety, I think it has that, um, the Abbey has it. The Abbey is like, 
a person, I think. It's like it has a soul. And I spent the summer in there this year and it was great. And that's actually how I met Colin originally was was working together in the Abbey. Mm. Well, we have a, a plethora of musical guests, so we should probably take a, a moment to have some music. So um, Lisa and Liam, you're going to do something together. Yes. It's, now it's your song, Venus Gate. Do you want to tell us a little about it? Yeah, them? so I've spent a lot of 2017 writing new material. I was artist in residence this year in a beautiful place called Kilruddery House in Wicklow, where I wrote a lot of, they were almost poems originally, and then they eventually became a musical project with Liam and Fake No Brain on Martin Brunston. But this is Venus Gate. It's a song about a gate in Kilruddery House, an old farmer's gate. But it's also a song about shedding the old skin and beginning again, which I think this time of year is yeah. all about. dedicated to Panty. The longer I stand in the dark waiting for you the more stars appear On a moonless night the world disappears stealing all the colors When I left you behind, my heart broke in two I fell deep, I, I fell for you I carry you in a song, world close to my heart The words I sing along, whoa, never will they part I pluck the flower and plunge in the subway of my mind Oh, and I found a haunted inkwell Longing for a rhyme The wondrous happenings Of the day they are They are Soft whisperings It's a patchwork of my soul A relic of my heart remains At the Venus gate I I wait for you I fall deep I, I fall for you I carry you in a song, whoa, close to my heart The words I sing along, whoa, never will they part I pluck the flower and plunge in the subway of my mind And I found a haunted At the Venus gate I will weep I will say goodbye Shed that old skin And begin again Begin again 
at the Venus Gate, I fall for you. Say goodbye, shed that old skin, and begin again. I will remain. I'll be your Venus in the sky. I carry you in a song, oh, close to my heart. The words are singing. Pluck the flower and plunge in the subway of my mind, and I find a haunted egg while longing for a ride at the Venus Gate. I will weep, say goodbye, shed that old skin, and begin again, begin again. At the Venus Gate, I fall for you all over again, all over again. I'll be your, I'll be your Venus in the sky. Gorgeous, really beautiful, beautiful. Um, Darren, I want to come to you now because um, your women's Christmas. Do you celebrate women's Christmas? And I'm really I'm asking you that really because um, from your work, well, it's very woman based. It is, and I mean, I do celebrate it. I think it's brilliant, and I feel in my life and in my writing life very much like I'm one in a long line of women, you know, and. Often historically, the voices of women writers wouldn't have been heard or wouldn't have been recorded mm. in the same way. And really, it's a miracle that we still have a lot of them, you know, at yeah. this point. So at this time of year and all through the year, I'm always thinking of the women who've gone before yeah. me, you know. Like, how, how did you come to poetry? I suppose my parents are here today. My my mum gave me a book which was edited by Niall McMonagall, an anthology, when I was a teenager. I think for Christmas, actually, which is a good connection. <laughs> there was really interesting stuff in there and it was called Real Cool. And the, book, the anthology was the called anthology Real Cool. The anthology was called Real Cool. Which, which normally means it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cover, I can remember vividly, was just a close-up of a pair of 18-hole Doc Martin boots. So I was like, wow, That's real cool. cool. Real cool. <laughs> so um, you're blaming your mother. But your grandfather, <laughs> tell yeah. us about your grandfather. Yeah, so we were all really lucky to be close to my grandfather. He was mm-hmm. a lovely, lovely person. And when he was dying, we all came to Dublin to be near him. And it was at a point in my life where I'd recently had our first baby. So when we got the call to come to his deathbed to say goodbye to him, I wasn't able to go yep. because I had to stay at home and mind the baby. And 
It was one of those strange moments in life where I was just lying there and my son was falling asleep. And out of the blue, this poem came to me in rhyme, in Irish, and to the point where I kind of thought, like, this must be something I heard years ago. And then my brain is now just... And when you say it came to you, you mean every word just... It's so weird. It came in couplets, you know. There was first, there was two lines. And then I was like, oh, hang on, there's another two lines. And it hasn't actually happened to me ever since (laughs) that. I wish it came that easily every time. (laughs) But yeah, I remember so clearly getting up and searching my aunt's house where I was staying desperately to find pen and paper, scribbling it down. And then the weirdest part, Panty, in some ways, is the fact that the next day and the day after and every day since I've sat down and written. So I do have that sense that in some strange way it was a gift. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's almost a mystical story is what you're telling us. I suppose it is. And, and I still feel at this point in my life that I don't fully understand what that story means yet, you know, but yep. it feels of importance to me. And I'm very, very glad that that was how I found my way to this yeah. art form, you know. But, but it's quite visceral, your, your stuff. You're not afraid of getting up close and the, you know, the sweat quite, and the grime and the blood. And, it yeah. is quite bodily, you know, yeah. Mm. But in terms of the domestic, I feel like there's a strange kind of magic in the domestic sphere that a lot of Irish women artists and writers are delving into at the mm-hmm. moment. I have that sense as well in my own understanding of the domestic that there are weird things happening and yep. That you're inhabiting it as a space, not just where you are at the moment, but also all the people who came before you, you know. Mm. Look, uh, you are going to do a poem for us. Um, I will. The other interesting thing is, your first poem came to you in Irish, but even though you weren't a, from a Gaelgore family per se, but you, you went to a Gale school now. I did. I always went to Gale school and I went in at four years old. And my mother tells a great story where I came home after the first day, immersion education. So you go in at four years old and they literally only talk Irish too. Yeah. And I had only English. And I came home and told my mother, it was great, but you know, the teacher just talks rubbish all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I started to pick it up after that and I'm really glad of it now. It was a lovely way to learn a language. I love when people say oh, immersion education because I always think, did I turn on the immersion? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you're going to do a poem in English for us though. I um, will. Do you want yeah. to tell us a little about it first? So I suppose it speaks to a lot of what we were talking about there actually, the sense that I always feel very strongly of being alive at the moment as a woman in Ireland but also feeling the sense of all the women who've come before and it speaks to uh, vintage clothes shops, which is something yeah, yes, that yes, I love. Yes, yes, of course, the vintage yes, lady Lisa over here. Yeah, and it's called brilliant. Wild Bleeding. It's called Wild Bleeding. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Wild Bleeding. In a vintage boutique on Sullivan's Quay, I lift a winter coat with narrow bodice, neat lapels, tight waist, a fallen hem. It's far too expensive for me, but the handwritten label, 1915, brings it to my chest in armfuls of red. In that year, someone drew a blade through a bolt of fabric and stitched this coat into being. I carry it to the dressing room, slip my arms in. Silk lining spills against my skin. I clasp the belt and draw a slow breath as a cramp curls again where blood stirs and melts. In glass, I am wrapped 
wrapped in the weight of old red. Red pinched into girl cheeks and smeared from torn knees. Lipstick blotted on tissue. All the red bled into pads and rags. The weight of red. The weight for red that we share. In the mirror, the old coat blushes. This pocket may once have sheltered something Precious, a necklace, a love letter, or a fresh egg, feather warm, its shell brittle around a hidden inner glow, held loosely so it couldn't crack, couldn't leak through seams, so it couldn't stain the dress within. Garamaki. Beautiful, thank you. Um, Nalim, I, I suspect that this is going to be a difficult Christmas for you because you lost your mother this year. Yeah. And Christmas, it's so wonderful in lots of ways, but it also can be difficult because there's something about Christmas and the first year that you know, somebody isn't there. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've no idea what to expect, really. It's really been intense. Well, since I heard, you know, she told me she was diagnosed and we spent the last year and a half in each other's company in Paul's Bridge. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, it, the tearful aspect, I found that emotion and tears have been my closest friend. Mm. And, you know, that this dead feeling in your heart moves when you cry. And, yeah. and um, so I've, I've developed a deeper relationship with myself as a result mm. of having access to tears much more readily than I've had in a long time, really. Yeah. And I cry for everything then, so mm. it's extraordinarily primal. Yeah. So Christmas, she would have been one of the keepers of the mystery of that time. Mm. and She was Leiden, right? She was Leiden, yeah. yeah. She was Ethna Leiden, and she was a very funny woman, unpredictable as a bird. Her mind moved as swiftly as the head of a sparrow. She was an actress, right? She was an actress, yeah. Uh, the acting was an accident. She was a piano player and she was interested in that world. And mm. she was in the Thaiviark and um, somebody from the Abbey, she didn't mention his name because she probably had a fling with them. <laughs> when she was going in to get the MRI, she was told this is going to be 20 minutes. So you're going to have to figure out how to deal with that 20 minutes. So she thought, she said, I know what I'll do. I'll count the boyfriends I had. <laughs> and, uh, oh my God, I love her. There wasn't enough. <laughs> you would, you would, I did. Um, but she, so somebody saw her and, and said, come to Dublin, come to the Abbey, come. And she came and lived in Dublin in Diggs and made a life for herself. Had a great time, but didn't love the Abbey. She didn't like the ambition, the ruthlessness because she didn't have it herself. Mm. And she kind of, in one way, maybe didn't rate herself as an, as an actress. She was in soaps or something at one point, was she? She was. She was a Dr. O'Neill from Donegal in Partners in Practice with Godfrey Quigley. You know, I'm with yourself. I, I like a good cry. Yeah. It's one of the number of reasons why I'm, I'm jealous of musicians because they have this other thing that they can sometimes maybe get lost in mm. 
or use it to sort of amplify something or get something out. Very true. So for, for you, like this year in particular, maybe, have you found yourself going deeper into music? Yeah. Mm. It's an ongoing pot that's just boiling all yeah. the time. And it's it's my subconscious, I suppose. It's mm. uh, The fact that music is non-literal, it's deeper than the word. Yeah. And so the song you're going to do for us is called... Auron na Feizrachta, like Keol Tashelon the Feizracht. Every second has a possibility in mu- in music. And it's a conversation without words. And my mother asked me to play it at her funeral. So I did that. I was very glad to do that. So Auron na now, my Irish is not... Feizracht is like uh, possibilities and... Yeah, so. possibilities in every split second. And I mean, you know, a meteor could fall at any second or anything. Mm. It could snow. Well, let's hear about your possibilities, <laughs> <Okay>. shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Now, Colin, I want to come to you. Um, 
You have a connection with Lisa, tenuous though it might be, in that both of you first maybe came to our attention mostly through a packaged version of Irishness in, in a way. Lisa, yours is a Celtic woman, and then Colin, yours, of course, Riverdance. Yeah. And I, through the, the nutty life that I have, I know a lot of ex-River dancers. I'm currently in the show Riot with two of them. And, um, That's right. And yeah. I always sense that they have an ambiguous relationship with it, that they, they are never fully embrace it. Are you the same? Yeah, as you say, a lot of dancers who did it and who've come out the other end, you know, I think we look back on it with a kind of nostalgia and we were young, yeah. we kind of jumped on the wagon yeah. and kind of went with it. And it was so unexpected in a way, you know, when unexpected, you were yeah. doing your Irish dancing classes and all that. and Doing your Irish dancing. Yeah, I mean, you never <laughs> would have imagined you'd be running around the world. No, for sure, yeah. yeah. So it was a surprise to all of us. But then, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's... There's something complex about it or there's something maybe around the whole idea that you've been part of something which still remains that is a commodity that's a very mm. commercial enterprise yeah. now. Well, also you don't want to be drawn back always to your, something you, you did before. No, you don't. And I think maybe part of the issue with it is with Irish dancers is that, you know, I grew up in Birmingham, so people, you know, yeah, I mean, I got a, a real slagging for it. I was on Blue Peter at the age of 10 and my kilt, my life changed the day afterwards. <laughs> That's also interesting to me because you and other well-known gentlemen from Riverdance came at it through an outside lens in a way. Yeah. True of Gene Butler and so yeah, many yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. So when you then came here to really embrace all of that, were you somehow still seen as, you know, you were from Birmingham? Well, it was always that odd thing, you know, in England, you know, I would have been seen as Irish. And then when I could, would have come home to family up in mm. Monaghan or down in Wexford, they would see you as English. And so I grew up in the 70s and it wasn't really possible to call yourself English-Irish then. Do you know what I mean? And when yeah, I started yeah. meeting people at the World Championships who were from the States or from Scotland, and like, you know, when I first heard the term Irish-American, it's like, what, the, what is that and how can that be? Well, I was just wondering about that because here's this thing that's so associated with Ireland in many ways, and yet it was envisioned by people who were looking at Ireland through a different lens. Yeah, through my upbringing in England, I had a very typical, probably second-generation upbringing as a, you know... A I've heard you describe it as fundamentalist Irish. <laughs> it was a, yeah, I would say it's fundamentalist. <laughs> and, you know, and sir, I don't think I met an English Protestant until I went to university at the age of 18. What? You know, yeah, I mean, it was pretty narrow and sheltered and certainly, you know, in terms of who would have come to the house or kind of socially, it was kind of based around family and... Um, mm family and church and kind of dance competitions and dance class. And it was incredibly narrow um, or, yeah, narrow. <laughs> but, but, but is that then something that makes you, is, it, is that then something that makes you feel like an outsider in both cultures? Or is it that you feel you can embrace both cultures? I mean, I would have been one of those people who was down at the Birmingham Irish Centre at the age of 16 <laughs> with my tricolour um, standing on top of the table at a Wolf Tones concert. Do you know what I mean? That's, <laughs> yeah. And certainly kind of dancing for me was... I saw at the time as a kind of a fantastic expression of myself as being Irish in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. You know, everything has changed now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But just to kind of get back to the thing about Riverdance and people's kind of response to it being in it, I think initially I think there was this huge euphoria around the Eurovision and it's like mm. Jesus what is this and this is new and it's kind of fresh yeah. and then and then it became this other juggernaut and and suddenly the whole world now thinks that if you're in any way an Irish dancer that you're and that this awful word river dancer it's like you don't call a ballet dancer a swan laker do you know what I mean? River <laughs> yeah. dance is yeah. the name of a show it's not the name of a thing it's, it's not a thing that you do you're a like dancer who does river dance Rudolph's friends river exactly. dancer, yeah. dancer. So, and I think very soon even after this new feeling that we'd kind of arrive somewhere new or fresh there was a feeling that actually the cliche had just become an, another one and, and, and Sean you um, 
well, I mean, you, you are a composer and you're mixing all these things. You do a lot of improvisational yeah. music stuff. But you're interested in place. You know, the, the lens that you see things through and, and then it affects the kind of art you make. Yeah. Actually, Liam teed it up nicely that, talking about this idea of possibility and like even within a single note. So a lot of what I do as an improvising musician would be just to stand on stage with no plan whatsoever and just see what happens. Which must be terrifying. That's Like great. when you brought it up, I think <laughs> that just is terrifying. Uh, I enjoy it quite a lot. I think I'd be a lot more terrified having to do no offence to Colin, but I wouldn't like to do river dance every night, like even for seven nights in a row. That yeah. would be enough to do me in. No, I can't do that. I have to do something new every single time. But, but do you have a sort of a fallback plan? No. Something that you will fall back on? No. You literally I'm, walk out and just whatever yeah. comes out, yeah. comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, the only fallback plan would be that I know a bit about harmony and I know how things can sound and I know how to make a nice sound. Mm. But I don't ever fall back on that. I mean... Yeah, no, it's really about engaging with whatever is there in front of you. And that brings in that idea of place very easily because I did an album maybe three years ago and the idea behind that was just live solo performances, 100% improvised, but they were all around Ireland. So to try and see what's the difference between playing a, a, a gig in Galway compared to Wexford. And, and so that kind of thing. Well, because interesting then, but your interest in place, because you do a lot of your recording in Norway... Yeah, I've just come back from Norway and finished an album with two Norwegian musicians, okay. uh, Jan Bang and Ivan Darset, who are heroes of mine, actually. So it's been really amazing to get to work with them. And, and how did the Norway connection come about? Just because they're better than everybody else. So I went there. <laughs> and, but the Norway... It's expensive, though. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been there and I'm like, oh my but God. But one of the reasons I'm so interested in the Norwegian scene, and there's really a lot of musicians there that I really look up to, is that they've kind of taken what happened with American jazz music in the 40s, 50s and 60s, and then they started seeing what would happen if they were to mash their own music into it and their own way of seeing the world, which is quite particular, the Scandinavian thing. So I think they've really brought that forward in a way that other countries haven't really... Mm. Everyone else is catching up and hardly anyone in Ireland is interested in doing that mm. yet. Yes, I hope you're not, you know, trying to get a mortgage or anything. I thought I wanted to come back to you here, Lisa, um, because you're just back from Myanmar. Tell us what that's about. So I was there working with a charity called LinkAid, which is a wonderful lady, an Irish lady called Pamela McCourt. And she invited myself and my husband to go to Myanmar to work with a charity that she has formed, which is all in connection with children in orphanages there. So it was just a, a, a really special place to visit. You remember um, your, your um, husband, Simon, he's a singer too, right? He is a singer, yes. So we both went to make music uh, for the mm -hmm. children there. But tourism hasn't really opened up hugely there. So mm. it's kind of a privilege to see it. Obviously, nobody speaks English except your tour guide. And yep. we had a beautiful time. We did a, a hot air balloon over the temples uh, by sunrise. And then we headed back to Yangon, which is the capital. And it was there that we started to work with the children in the orphanage. But the orphanage was very special. There were 26 children, the most beautiful children I've, I've ever seen, actually. Just so polite. I mean, mm. they don't have electricity. They play games with newspapers. Uh, it's like going back in time, really. Yep. So it was a really humbling experience. And my heart was broken and opened at the same time being there. And, and actually, that's something because, Colin, you go to Russia and all sorts of places teaching Irish dance. I do, yeah. There's a big Irish dance scene in Russia that kind of blew my mind when I first started going out there in 2005. I mean, they'd all started teaching themselves from video, just kind of copying the video in a kind of really awful way. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I go twice a year. I mean, generally to Moscow, St. Petersburg. I was in Siberia, Novosibirsk in June, teaching there for the first time. And, and, um, and they're interested in Irish dance yeah. in Siberia yeah. because they saw it on YouTube or something. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, I can kind of see even a little bit of my own upbringing in, in that they kind of have this really overly romantic view then of Ireland. Yeah, right, so it yeah. doesn't just become about the dance, it becomes about the music and, and all the cliches and Guinness. And they have like pseudonyms. So like, you know, I remember saying to someone, oh, what's your name? And he was like, Dara. And I was like, no. And he's like, no, it's Dimitri, but please call me Dara. It's kind of, you know, <laughs> Alga is Onya. And they, so they just completely buy into the whole thing. You know, I was like, what is it about art? Like, what? Like, you've such a rich dance culture here in mm. Russia of all sorts, and you know, between ballet and then folk dance. And, and they just kind of see it as being really expressive, which kind of I find really fascinating because it's a form that I have struggled to find expression yeah. through. I, you, well, because we think of it as unexpressive in a exactly, way. Exactly. Yeah, you know, that was the complaint yeah. of ours. Yeah. But, but, but that is something that I sometimes hear dancers saying, and they wish they were in the flamenco tradition and everything. And I said, but isn't in its own way flamenco and everything? It's as regimented. I mean, it can be. I mean, I think, you know, there are forms of dance and there's, there's a vocabulary and a style that makes them what they are. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So... And in a way, when you're kind of learning them, that involves a certain amount of obedience to the form so mm. that you can kind of learn the thing in the first place. Well, one of the things actually I was a little surprised at, I thought that, you know, after River Dance and that, and then sometimes I see, you know, on Facebook, somebody put up some kind of virally thing and it's, and it's Irish dancing, but it's not the one that I remember. But then I see these pictures from the fish kills and all that, and it's, the, in the kids' world, it's still the ringlet wigs and the... Well, it's not even ringlets, it's wigs and it's kind of 3,000 euro costumes and fake So, so it hasn't kind of seeped down in a way, the, the sort of more modern take where the men's arms are moving a bit and, you know... Yeah, I mean, the form is still dictated by the men and women who sit around a room making the rule book. I mm. mean, this whole thing, I mean, traditional Irish dance was invented at the turn of the last century during the whole Gaelic revival. It was basically a bunch of men sitting around a table deciding what Irish dance would now be once the English were gone. What's ours, what was theirs? It's like an episode from Father Ted. It's like, let's have a national dance where people don't move their arms. Ted. <laughs> At the time, you know, guys were kind of directed towards sports, so they were really talking about the female body. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really fascinating when you kind of go back on it, and it blew my mind after like 20 years of kind of doing this thing, and then, you know, from the age of three, and then during my 20s, then starting to kind of read about it and just realizing how kind of fake it was or something. Mm. I suppose the good thing about that is that it gives people like me or other people something to respond to or react mm. to or work against or kind yep. of, you know, or work with or reimagine what it might have been before that time or, you know, um, you need something to kind of be agitated with and certainly that agitates me. So. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> like Christmas, so. <laughs> Dear, were you an Irish dancer because you're in a Gale Scullin, eh? No, I'm afraid no. not. I'd love to have been, but no. Well, um, you know, one of our sort of themes today is this you know, of drawing from the well of tradition and the past and all. Um, so I want to talk to you about the work you're doing at the moment. What I draw a lot of solace from is the sense of, like I mentioned earlier, that there are other women who have walked this ground before me, yes. you know. And I feel really close to other women. And often in the Irish language tradition, this sense of women's literature that's there in the oral and that was carried from woman's body to woman's body in terms of the poems that were recited. Yeah. So I've been thinking about that a lot at the moment. The place that we live is sort of close to a place that has a really strong poetic resonance in Irish literature, which is near McCroom, which is where Queen Arthi Lyra was first composed and recited. And I'm really driven 
by that work at the moment and really yeah, passionate explain about it. Explain a little for listeners who aren't. Um, the poet Eileen Dovney Connell is a young mother of two children who's pregnant and she's sitting in her home and her husband's horse comes through the cobbled yard without her husband on it. Mm. And when she goes out, she sees that there's blood on the saddle. And it was written when... It's over 200 years mm. old. So when she saw the blood on the saddle, she jumped on the saddle and the horse rode her to Karaganima, where she found the body of her husband. And she jumped from the horse and her grief articulated itself in this howl, a woman's howl mm-hmm. of the time, which would have been this queen, uh, this lament. And she cupped her hands and drank his blood. So there's this sense of the communion of her body, the tradition and the sense of past and present coming all in collision in this powerful moment. Well, you know, like, it doesn't surprise me at all that you were drawn to this story, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's got all the ingredients <laughs> yes, it that does, I like. Yeah, yeah. 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 Blood, so, domesticity, yeah, yeah. desire, like, yeah, everything you you're go. interested in. Exactly. So what I've been doing is going to places like where she grew up in Derry Nan and all the places basically that we know that she stood. Like, you know, when you're a kid and you press a glass to a wall and you want to see if you can hear what's going on the other side of the wall. I've just been kind of doing that tap, tap, tapping on the wall and waiting to see if there's a tap, tap, tap back. In and a way, you're, you know, I don't know, it's like, it's almost a seance. You're, you're communing with her. I suppose, a little bit. And because you're actually translating the, the poem into English. I am, yeah. and I'm such a nerd for this kind of thing, you know. I love the fact that she composed this. Then it was handed down from woman to woman. Then when it translated itself to a written text, you have men writing it down and starting to translate it, and they're all putting their own English on it. Mm-hmm. And it becomes really like... Like we have a phrase in Irish, Dortban, Lunga, Northban, Lehi, you know, it becomes like someone told me that someone told her, yeah. that, like Chinese whispers. Yeah. And for me, that's really exciting, seeing how different people translate or put English on her words. Mm. So it feels very alive to yeah. me, Panty. It feels it really feels alive. It feels very alive to me listening to you talk about <laughs> it. Um, so you're going to share a little bit uh, Just with us. a yeah, tiny just a bit. Um, so one of the elements that I love about it is that we have in her words this description of the the start of this passionate kind of collision where she first sees Arthur Lyra and falls in love with him mm. at the market in McCroom. And I'll read it, I'll read it in Irish first. Let me ask you, I do say. Mughra gadangantu Lord avakatu a county on Varga Hogmahul Araguit Hogmahri Tatnevguit Delius um Haradslat Ivad Ovalalat. Oh, my relentless lover. The day I first saw you by the market's top thatch, how my eye took a shine to you, how my heart took delight in you. I fled my kin with you, soared far from home with you. And she really did. She eloped. She left everything behind her. She didn't get a dowry, which was a big thing in those days. And she started off on her own in this passionate life with him. And that's what I'm trying to explore. Oh, my relentless lover. God, I want a relentless oh, lover. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she was related to Daniel O'Connell. She was. She was his aunt. No, well, your connection to it is beautiful. And I love people who become obsessed with things and and really dig down into them and... You know, I did the same with Charlie's Angels. 
Um, <laughs> 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 um, Lisa and Liam, you are going to finish up for us. Tell us. Uh, and Sean's going to join oh, us Sean as well. Oh, He's nice a, one. Improvising. Well, you're going to improvise. Going to make it up. Yeah. Yes, this is, this is what you live for. Yeah. Now it is, am I right in thinking that it's an old Hot House Flowers song? Yes. Or it are. is, yes. Yeah. What's it called? Christchurch Bells. Christchurch Bells. Yeah. I was just uh, in STS Studios, no longer around now, in Temple Bar, and um, the window was open. You could hear the bells. Yeah. And I thought, there's money in that idea. <laughs> <laughs>
thank you, Ian. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Sean. That, I'm afraid, is it for um, our Christmas episode of Fantasocracy, though we are back next week on New Year's Day. Thanks for our wonderful guests, Lisa Lamb and all your hair, Alima Wainley, Jeremy <laughs> Griefer, uh, Sean McAlean, and Colin Dunn. Well, you know, if you're at home, I hope you're um, having a lovely Christmas day, um, enjoying your, your Christmas and your loved ones, or if you are like Colin Dunn, you can just hibernate <laughs> for a few more hours because it's nearly soon be over. over. Thank you. <laughs> 